Oh, Lord, within my soul, I long for purity to be complete and whole alone through Thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free, must come alone through thee. My faith thy word believes, the promise made to me, and perfect peace receives alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free, must come alone through thee. All right, let's quote our memory. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Shall we pray? Father, these are wonderful characteristics that begin to develop when we surrender our life to Jesus. Lord, take away all our excuses. All of the characteristics that Jesus had are in these beautiful little statements of what we can experience. And help us, Lord, this morning especially, to think how we can apply these in a very practical way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We talked about a kingdom conversion. <clears throat> I told you that the, uh, be, the so-called beatitudes are simply describing the process that flows from the new birth. We enter in by being poor in spirit, by getting down off our high horse, say, we know nothing, Jesus teach me, and he will have to teach us everything because all of our impulses in the flesh are the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. And so all these beatitudes are counterintuitive. <clears throat> And so the only way that they can ever develop is if we come to Jesus and are poor in spirit and say, look, I'm a learner, I have everything to unlearn, I have everything to learn, and I'm willing to change. And then this whole process begins to develop supernaturally in our life. That's what we talked about on the first day. So the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I told you that for years I wondered why there wasn't a Uh, a a call to a new birth at the beginning, and then I realized that's exactly what you have. You not only have a new birth, you have the process that flows from it. Uh, The visible evidence of a new birth developing or uh, an ongoing process started by that new birth. Then we talked about keeping first things first, and we talked about fasting as a reset. You deny, and because we tend to keep going, well, I guess I should be doing this from your standpoint, we tend to keep going with our fleshly pursuits. We get more and more wealth, we get more and more comforts, we get more and more luxuries, we eat more and more exotic food, we get fatter and fatter, and uh, we just constantly, Jesus knew, would have to have a reset and say, no, we're going to stop here and we're going to reset everything back. And instead of wanting more of this, we will be happier with simple things. Potatoes will taste good. We don't have to go to the nearest gourmet restaurant after we've done the reset. All right, so we talked about this great reset, and then we talked about economics. And that Jesus actually taught that there are basically two groups of people. They're the people who have it coming this way before they're converted. And then when they're converted, it starts to go this way. And they no longer are acquisitive, uh, accumulating stuff for themselves 
but whatever they have, they're beginning to distribute. John the Baptist started this by saying, if you have two coats, give one away, and that'll prove that you're truly repentant, that this reverse process has begun. So that's what we talked about the second day. And then we talked about the ideal resistance, that it's not non-resistance. It's the highest form of resistance. It gets to that part of each person that has that soft spot, that generosity, which the most hardened sinners, it's there. It's uh, constantly uh, smothered by the other side, which is extremely selfish. And uh, if you don't carry anything away from this meeting in terms of definitions, remember that selfishness is, as far as I'm concerned, is the exact synonym for sin. If you want a practical definition for sin, it's selfishness. And I told you that on the billboard calls, they often say to me, well, what is sin? Then I could say, well, it's... uh, it's uh, missing the mark. Uh, uh, I could say all kinds of things. And then we'd have a big theological discussion. But if I say selfishness is sin, they, they all understand that. And they all understand that that's the thing that has ruined everything. <laughs> and, uh, and then I say, and Jesus is the only solution for that. I mean, all the other lawgivers, all the other gods, Allah and all those people, they give all kinds, supposedly, I'm not even sure it's true, but they give all kinds of laws but they don't do anything to take away the sins that have already been committed. They don't do anything to help you keep that record clean uh, like the blood of Jesus does. <clears throat> and so there is in every person uh, something that, that we can appeal to if we use the ideal resistance. And we don't need to talk more about that. And then yesterday we talked about perfection in prayer. And how that the Lord's Prayer is a complete description of what the Christian life is. It's all in there. Ten things I pointed out to you yesterday. Well, now, Jesus was a realist. (laughs) He not only was an idealist. We have all these ideals in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And all of them are impossible. I tell people, if you really want miracles, just really do what Jesus said. You will need miracles. uh, And you'll see miracles if you obey Jesus. But Jesus doesn't leave us just with ideals. I've always appreciated the Sermon on the Mount that one-third of it, the last one-third, is practical realism. Jesus was not a starry-eyed idealist. You can be a realist and an idealist. The oyster uh, gets a a little piece of sand in there, and uh, what's it do? Does it rebel? No. It starts to deposit a milky substance on that little piece of quartz and develops something for which people are willing to risk their lives to get. Uh, some writer that I read somewhere said, wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. <laughs> and so you can be a realist, you can be an idealist at the same time. And Jesus was. And so he ends this Sermon on the Mount with some tremendous realism. And I want to start with a little story. I told you I lived near the Gettysburg battlefield, and Jesus used illustrations from, from military situations, so I think I'm free to do this. Uh, In that battle, that was the largest battle fought on American soil ever. 165,000 soldiers, 23,000 on the Union side died, and 28,000 on the Confederate side died, or or were casualties. There were 51,000 casualties in three days. I cannot imagine. It took them weeks to bury the bodies, and the smell of the decaying bodies was smelled for miles for towns far away. I don't, can't imagine what it was like living in that town during that time. Well, <clears throat> of course, the, uh, the Confederate Army lost. It lost one-third of its troops, and that would have been the end of the war. It could have been the end of the war, and Lincoln knew that. So Lincoln sent frantic telegrams to General Meade Destroy the southern army. Don't let them escape. Meade disobeyed. In spite of all those frantic telegrams, he let the Confederate army leave. And uh, if you talk to the older people in our community and they recite stories they heard from the older people in their generation, they came down through our valley, wagon loads of screaming, moaning men with blood dripping out of the wagons, and they went south, and the war lasted two more years because of it. It could have ended at Gettysburg. What would you have done with Meade? Well, people said, look, he needs to be court-martialed. He needs to be punished. He disobeyed the president. He didn't obey orders. But Lincoln gave him an honorable discharge. Lincoln said, I was not at Gettysburg. I did not live through three days of hell at Gettysburg. I did not have to listen to the screams of dying men for three days. If I had been Meade, 
maybe I wouldn't have had the heart to destroy a wounded army myself. Now, Lincoln, of course, was a, a war president, one of the Southern Army destroyed. But this, this shows another side of Lincoln. I told you that in every person there are two people. There's the generous side and there's the selfish side. And there was a real generous side to Lincoln. In fact, the word I would use to describe him is magnanimous. Magnanimous means a huge heart. There are many stories of Lincoln's huge heart toward people that were in trouble. Uh, and Jesus knew that we would need to have a magnanimous heart. That's what this last, this seventh chapter, these first verses we're going to talk about, is all about how to apply these ideals. Jesus knew that he had set very lofty ideals, a new kind of person, which we described the first day, a new kind of society where uh, anger did not dominate, lust did not dominate, dishonesty was dealt with, revenge and violence, all of these things. He pictured this society that was showing uh, the original ideals for society, what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed the king. This is extremely idealistic. In fact, very few people have been able to achieve these ideals. He saw a society where the tyranny of property was broken. People did not have a selfish sense of, of ownership, where there was vital faith without, hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. A little colony of heaven on earth, if you please. And so you ask, is it real? Many people ask me that after I describe it on the telephone. In fact, if I describe the kingdom of God on the telephone, they say, you must have voted for Bernie Sanders. Well, yes. The reason why Bernie Sanders and all those socialists and even communists and Marxists, why they have such a tremendous appeal is because they are saying, we're promising you an equitable society where everybody's treated right, where there are no rich and no poor, the property, the wealth is shared. Sure, who doesn't want that? The problem with them is they try to oppose it by force and it turns into a horrible nightmare. And I tell them that, yes. Bernie's appealing to many of the things that I just told you about, but if you let him have his program, he will try to bring that about by force, and history shows that that has always turned into a bloodbath and a nightmare. In the kingdom of God, Jesus deals with the selfishness that's at the root of all the problem, and it can have its realization voluntarily. Okay? So Matthew 7 tackles the practical problems to be overcome. Jesus saw what was ahead. We often don't. People get together, say, we're going to have a new community, and oh my, we love each other so much we could eat each other, and then they end up actually trying to do that after about two or three years. Jesus saw what was ahead, all right? He saw there'd be a mixture of the weak and the strong. He saw there'd be a mixture of the false and the true. He saw there would be a mixture of the faithful and the unfaithful. He saw all of that. And he knew that very few people would stay with these ideals to the end. He also knew that. He said there'd be few that would. And in the judgment, it's, it says, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say to most of those, depart from me, ye that are lawless. By the way, it's not legalism that destroys Christianity. Jesus said, for the, because of iniquity, the love of many shall wax cold. Lawlessness. So when people start saying that legalism is the major foe that we face, I say you have the wrong L word. It's lawlessness. Okay. I'm not saying legalism can't be a problem, but I think most people, when they talk about legalism, really are not talking about genuine legalism. I could tell you what I believe it is, and maybe I will till it's all done. All right, so we have four kingdom cautions here. Jesus is telling us, if this is ever to have any realization, you're going to have to do four things. And you're going to have to learn to do these four things well. So the first question that is asked is, how do I relate these idealistic teachings to my fellow brethren when they're imperfect and things happen? How do I do this? What do I do? Well, Jesus knew that if we don't learn this, what we're just going to talk about, this ideal will turn into a nightmare, okay? And in fact, uh, Jesus said, or uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Paul that said, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, but if you bite and devour each other, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And so this is a very important situation. So what does Jesus say? 
Well, the first thing he says is don't judge. Now, he didn't, certainly did not mean that we were not supposed to be very discriminatory in our evaluations of situations. At the end of the chapter, he says, beware of people who live an undisciplined life. Beware of false prophetic personalities. Great swelling words they have, but they don't have a life to back it up. Beware of false prophets. Beware of lawless miracle workers. Beware of those who build on things other than Jesus teaches. He teaches, tells us at the end of this to beware, beware, beware. So he's not saying don't discriminate. He's not saying don't mark. Paul says mark people that do certain things. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, this is the same word that is used when it's said in Romans 2. It says, who art thou that condemnest another? You do the same things. It's the word condemn. And I want you to look at that word. Uh, it, it, it's an interesting word. Does anybody see another word in there that's sort of a really bad word? Damn. All you have to do is change this letter. And that's literally what the word means. Don't damn people. Don't put them down. Don't push them down till you have them in an irredeemable category and you can do with them whatever you want to. You can gossip, you can destroy their reputation, whatever. Don't do that. Don't do that. <clears throat> do not condemn. It's the same word as the word in Romans 2, verse 1. The problem is self-righteousness. The problem is you've gotten yourself up here by putting other people down. And you have a few things that you think you do well and other people don't. And so you're up here and you have everybody else down because they're not as good as you are. It's self-righteousness. It's an attempt to raise ourselves by putting other people down. Have you ever noticed when the other fellow acts that way, he's ugly? When you act that way, it's just your nerves. When others are set in their ways, they're obstinate. When you are set in your ways, you're just simply firm. When your neighbor doesn't like your friend, he's prejudiced. If you don't like his, you're a good judge of human nature. When he tries to treat, when he tries to treat someone especially well, he's toadying. When you try it, you're being thoughtful. When he takes time to do things well, he's a slow poker lazy. And when you do, you're deliberate and careful. When he spends a lot, he's a spendthrift. When you do, you're generous. When someone picks a flaw in things, he's cranky and critical. When you do, you're creative. When he's mild-mannered, you call him weak, and when you are, it's graciousness. When someone dresses especially well, that person is extravagant. When you do, it's good taste. When he says what he thinks, he's spiteful, and when you do, you're just being frank. When he takes great risk in business, he's foolhardy, and when you do, you're a wise financier. That's our tendency. Okay? And so... Jesus condemns self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. You know, I talk to a lot of these people on the phone. I'm a good person. Well, you probably do a lot of good things. If you were my neighbor, we'd probably enjoy you as a neighbor. There's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. We can all do a lot of good things. But if we're really honest, there are many things we can't do. And when, all the, when the rubber hits the road, that selfishness comes out. So... Why is it wrong to condemn, to damn other people? And that's what you're doing. When you gossip about somebody, you're, you're damning them. You're putting them, in a, 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 you're putting them down. You're passing judgment. You're, uh, yeah, that's what you're doing. So why is it so wrong? Well, it's the opposite of what Jesus did. The Bible says Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He could have. He was truly, perfectly righteous. He could have come into this world and could have just, just be smashing people down all over the place. And he had a perfect reason for doing it. And he certainly would have had a perfect right to do it. But he did not. He, didn't, he, did, not, he did not come in to put people down. In fact, he put himself down. Philippians chapter 1 says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't esteem yourself better than others. Esteem others better than themselves. Did you ever notice in chapter 12 of Romans where it says, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind? The very next thing it says is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The first evidence of a renewed mind is a proper view of yourself. 
is a proper humility about yourself. That's the first evidence of a renewed mind. And so this is the opposite of what Jesus did. He stepped down. Jesus was God. That's, he was at the absolute top. But he said he didn't think that was something he had to keep. So he stepped down, 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 down. We could talk about that this morning. So he finally stepped down to the very lowest death and even the worst death, the death on the cross. That's what he did. He put himself down. He didn't put other people down. In fact, he says he, don't judge, he doesn't judge anybody. He never will. Even in the judgment, he won't. You don't believe that, do you? Well, I shall read to you what Jesus said. And if any man hear my words and believe them not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So even in the last judgment, Jesus isn't going to judge anybody. The words that he spoke, the truth, the reality that he presented will condemn them. And he won't have to do anything personally. This is his example. Okay? Jesus' judgments are not personal. Jesus' judgments are the words that he gave us that are the words of how reality really is. And we will be defeated by that, not by any personal action of Jesus himself, necessarily. All right. So, Jesus didn't do it. So, that's the first reason why this is very wrong. We are not following Jesus when we condemn other people. He did not do that. All right. He said some very harsh words. In Matthew 23, he really called people vipers and, and uh, hypocrites and all of that. But just remember, at the end of that chapter, he sits down and weeps over the city. So if you're going to say harsh words, just make sure that when you're done, you sit down and weep about the situation. If you're condemning, you're not going to be doing that. You're going to feel mighty righteous in your own eyes. All right, number two. It causes us to project our own faults unto unto other people. We start to assume that they did and said what they did because we know what our motives would be, our ugly, selfish motives, and so we attribute those motives to other people. That's what Romans chapter 2 is saying. Who art thou that judgest another? You do the same things. A few years ago, we had the horrible spectacle of a TV evangelist who fell into moral sin And then there was another TV evangelist that got on the air and just roasted this guy alive and condemned and just went on and on and on and on and on. A year later, we found out that he was doing the same thing, only worse. And I was in a barber shop when he came on then finally to make his confession. And the barber was an atheist. And he looked at that TV screen and he said, now, isn't that a beautiful person? He he despised him. This is just awful. When we condemn other people because the same, in fact, when somebody is really critical of a certain area, uh, we had a man in our community that I mean the slightest whiff of immorality, and he was on it and out in the community talking about it. And I often wondered, I wonder what's going on in his life. Because it says, if you have this attitude, it grows out of you projecting your own problem. You see that? And so you're giving yourself away. If you have a condemning attitude, people are going to say, well, he's condemning everybody else for being liars. Well, let's check him out. Oh, he's doing the same thing. Oh, he's proud. <laughs> Do you hear he says everybody's proud? <laughs> we all know he is. So, I mean, that's, that's what happens. We project our own problems onto other people. So that's why Galatians 6.1 says that correcting another brother carries a very high risk. You're supposed to go to him in a spirit of meekness, lest you also are tempted to raise yourself. I mean, this is your chance to get up by putting other people down. Okay? And so he says, "You you consider yourself lest you also be tempted. And finally, it misses the goal of correction. The goal of correction is to gain your brother, Matthew 18. That's the whole purpose, to go to him and gain him. This does the opposite of that. It's to redeem people and build up the church. 
Christians' responses to other people are always, if they're what they should be, and I'm, listen, Brother Mickey said we stand up here and you think we're doing all this. I struggle in this area probably as much as anybody. I forget that the whole point is to redeem. I should have a redemptive attitude toward everybody. That doesn't mean I don't have to go sometimes and talk to them, but I should study. We're going to see here, Jesus saying, study very carefully before you go to make sure that you have scrubbed all the self-righteousness out of your soul. All the tendency to put him down out of your soul. All the anger out of your soul. All the hypocrisy out of your own life. And then when you are sure you are ready to go and speak kindly and redemptively and there's no selfishness involved, then go talk to your brother. This is quite an order. So what is the answer to this? Well, the answer is to secure our own repentance first. And I just described that. You know, when a doctor is going to do an operation, they do scrub. I think they do it for 20 minutes with the best hand detergent they can use. They scrub and scrub and scrub because they don't want to introduce any pathogen into that operation, especially if it's on the eye. And he uses the eye as an example. They make sure they don't introduce any pathogen. Well, the pathogen you may introduce is selfishness, self-righteousness. And I don't know about you, but it's quite a job to get that all out. But don't you dare go talk to the brother until you have some reason to believe that your only reason for going is to gain him. Have your heart delicate the eye on we all tend to think we are more than what we are I the Christian Burkholder's little statement and you all should read this tract addressed to youth on true repentance and in that tract among many other things it's not a very long tract you can read it in probably 10-15 minutes he says we none of us are as spiritual as we think we are and I will add to that none of us realize how carnal we still are, how much flesh we still have to deal with. We, over, we overestimate and underestimate in those areas. And then that's why we have this problem. I always give the illustration of the man who wrote a book on child training. And by the way, if you want the best talk I ever gave on child training, get one before I was married. <clears throat> this man, man wrote a book on child training. He either had just wasn't married or just got married and maybe had some very small children. But the title, the first, the first time it was in print, was 10 Surefire Ways to Raise Spiritual Giants. I mean, he had all the answers in that book. And then 10 years later, the book was out of print. He had children. They were 8, 9, 10 years of age. And so he revised the book a little bit, and he put it back in print. The second title was 10 Principles of Child Training. See what's happening? Ten years later, the book was out of print. His children were older or married, and his job was pretty well done. He revised the book. The last title was A Few Child Training Suggestions That You Might Find Helpful. Well, that's the stage I'm in. (laughs) But I made some pretty cocky statements earlier in my life that I have to eat, and it's not a very good thing to eat. Okay. So... Just, and I've watched, I've watched people. In fact, right now I'm trying to help a man who was so critical of all other people. He knew how to raise children. He'd come to church with his books, and he always read the right books. He always had the right ideas. He all, we all needed to be instructed by him Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. His family is an absolute disaster. And now he's wondering how in the world to deal with the mess that he created by his self-righteousness. So self-righteousness, just remember, selfishness is sin, and self-righteousness is a specific aspect of that sin, which is a difficult thing for us to deal with. But to be aware of it is the first step to dealing with it. Most people just blunder into situations, aren't even aware of their self-righteousness and how much damage it's going to do. Be aware of it. Secure your own repentance first. Make sure you scrubbed your soul clear of all this junk. And when you're reasonably sure you can go talk to that brother with a heart to win him and no self-righteousness and nothing to prove you're right and everybody else's, that's all gone, then go to the brother and gently correct him. Self-righteousness sees the moat. In fact, the Bible says, why are you beholding? It means gazing at the moat. 
You should be thinking how to get the moat out, not just looking at it and, and gloating over it. Self-righteousness sees the moat. The clean heart sees how to remove it, or at least knows what kind of attempt is necessary to remove it, if it was even there in the first place. Okay? Your brother is precious to you. He may be the very brother that you need sometime in the future. And if you get rid of him, there'll be nobody there to help you when you need help. This is very important. So let me give you a few cautions. Hatred, greed, envy, jealousy, and hurts are very contagious. And people go around spreading these and people listen. You know what gossip is? It's that which goes in both ears and out the mouth greatly enlarged. And people will listen to you by the hour if you have all these hurts and, and uh, jealousies and competition and all this garbage that, that really gossip is made up of. They'll listen to you. So, so avoid being around people. I, I could, in my own life, I could name people like that. And uh, just stay away from them. Just, just don't, you don't need that contagion. All right? Number two, fight against gossip. I already talked about it. And number three, let's develop a readiness to compliment. Let's develop a readiness to compliment. We're so afraid we're going to make the other person proud. Well, go ahead and take the risk, and that's his problem. At least you've done your part in complimenting and trying to encourage. I had a friend who went to Eastern Mennonite University way back in its early years, and uh, M.T. Brackbill was the famous astronomer there, but he had a wife who taught literature. And my friend was in her literature class, and he said he never in his life met someone who went out of his, her way to compliment If a student wrote something well, there was a public compliment. If the student gave a good uh, recitation, there was a public compliment. Just compliments, compliments, compliments. And then he said she'd go away for a day and there'd be a substitute teacher. And everybody was on their best behavior because the worst thing they could imagine was to have her come back and have to talk to them about something they did wrong. You see what I'm talking about? All right. So... The first part is correct with compassion. The purpose is to win the brother back. We're talking now about things in the brotherhood. The purpose is to win the brother back. If we're not careful, it's an opportunity to raise ourselves. Gossip gives us status because it shows everybody how much better we are than the person we're putting down. So, like I said, be aware of that. I think a lot of people aren't thinking in the terms we're talking about. Be aware of that. When you go to correct somebody, get rid of all the self-righteousness and go only to correct. And after you've studied how you can most kindly say what you have to say and not hurt any more than you have to. And sometimes there has to be words said that hurt. I'm not saying that. But be careful that the hurt isn't the way you said it. Let it be just what you said. All right? Number two, witness with wisdom. Now, this has to do with what are we going to do with these ideals for those people out there? The first thing was how are we going to deal with this here without causing trouble, being redemptive, and causing good things to happen. The second thing we're going to talk about is how do we witness to the people out there? For those without grace, these ideals will fail. And the best example is Marxism. They had the same idea. Listen to this. From each according to his means, to each according to his need. Hmm. That comes right from the gospel. And they won one-third of the world with that promise, which, of course, they never delivered on. A hundred million people died under that in Russia and China. That doesn't sound like a, a great fulfillment of that, from each according to his means and to each according. But that was the promise. It's, it, actually, Marxism is a gospel heresy. It doesn't work. That's what the socialists don't understand. It's the shining ideal that everybody wants, but it won't work. It will fail until selfishness is dealt with, and only Jesus can deal with selfishness. And I'm, I hate to say that it hardly works even, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> this is a real struggle. This is a real struggle. So be careful how you handle this. He said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't go out there and make a fool of yourself 
and start uh, telling people about non-accumulation of their wealth, they will ridicule you. That makes no sense to them. That is the utmost stupidity. So you should, when you're dealing with people, there are three classes of people. They're the simple people who believe everything they're told. The story is told of the old deacon. Somebody came and talked to him, and he said, I believe you're right. The next day, a person on the other side of the issue came and talked to him, and he said, well, I believe you're right. His wife was listening to both conversations. She said, now, honey, they can't both be right. And he said, honey, I believe you're right. That's the simple person. There's a lot of hope for him. He's going to hear what you have to say. And you might get him to move off his simplicity. Then there's the fool. He doesn't believe everything he says. He's already made up his mind and he's going to reject. There's not as much hope for him. There may be some. The book of Proverbs gives him a little bit of hope and not a whole lot. And then there's the scorner. This is the one you have to watch. He not only has rejected the truth, he's out to destroy it and the truth bearer. And there's no point in giving him these ideals. There's no point in giving them to him. He will turn and rend you. In fact, a good example of this is we went on our wedding trip. We were married on a Saturday. We went and stayed overnight in Winchester, Virginia. And I don't know what other couples do on Sunday morning after they're married on Saturday, but I told my wife, "We're we're going to church. So we went downtown, and I think we chose the church with the tallest steeple, and we were too stupid to realize that only the Mennonites have services at 9 o'clock. We were way early, but the pastor was having an early morning Bible study with a very very small group of men. And lo and behold, we walked in when the message, they were doing the Ten Commandments, and we happened to be there with the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And the pastor said, now, he said, there's always been a majority position on this, that, that under certain circumstances, Christians not only should, uh, can have the uh, permission to kill, but they have, they have the responsibility, just war theory. Now, he said, there's a very small minority of people uh, that have believed that killing is always wrong. I'm sure we don't have that view represented here this morning. And of course, I was smiling. And so I waited till somewhere in the discussion, and I raised my hand and said, I represent this minority position you talked about. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. We were so afraid that view wouldn't be represented. We want to know what that's all about. Would you please explain? So I began to explain our view. And after a bit, it made no sense to them. I could tell their disgust. And I mean, they quickly got this discussion back on the track that they were on. And I learned the hard way that you have to be careful how you handle these ideals. I look back now, I probably could have handled it much more tactfully. I probably could have given it in a way they could have accepted. I don't know, but all we're saying is be careful how you handle these ideals because there will be people who will ridicule you and reject and actually you will do more harm than good. There are people out there whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and they do not want to hear about the ideals of the kingdom. To those people, the idea of sexual purity before marriage, I've had them just absolutely laugh out loud on the telephone when I talked about this. Are you kidding This is what everybody does. What's wrong with it? The talk against violence. Well, what what do you do with people like Stalin and Hitler? Ah, this makes no sense. Be careful how you handle these ideals. Okay? Discern between the simple, the fool, and the scorner, and be especially wary of the scorner. The Sermon on the Mount was given to disciples. And Jesus is telling them, be careful now how you handle this outside the congregation of disciples. So what are we supposed to do? Because we're supposed to witness to those people. Well, go back to the the, uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount we did not discuss. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Oh, so it's show before you tell. And you had that at Pentecost. They spoke in tongues and the people said, what meaneth this? And then they got the sermon. You really should be watching for the supernatural phenomenon that people are saying, what is this? A good example is the nickel mine shooting. Some other thing happens, and they're saying, what is this? Okay, that's the very best time. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works.
gospel. Number three, how do you perceive all this? I mean, this, this requires a tremendous amount of discernment. How are you going to know how to do all of this that I just was describing? How are you going to be able to, to tell what the, which of those people you're going to say what to? How are you going to know what to say to your brother? These are hard decisions. Well, my third point is proceed with prayer right after this. Jesus says, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Asking is expressing your sense of need. You're asking. Seeking means you add some effort to your sense of need, and you start to dig, and you're listening to people, and you're trying to learn. Knocking means you persist. You don't quit. He says, everyone that asketh receiveth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened, and he that seeketh findeth. By the way, those are ETH words in the King James Version, and uh, I think they're, um, in fact, I know these particular words are those continuous actions words. Continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock. And we talked about persistence the other night and what that is all about. We're aiming at the heart, not the head. I have to remember that on the telephone. We're not, we're not trying to win an argument. We're, trying, we're asking God to tell us how to get to the heart. And we talked about that with the ideal resistance. How to get to the heart with that ideal resistance, which is a powerful way to, to wage warfare against evil. Uh, so keep asking. God answers those who are serious. The story is told of a philosopher who was very wise A young man came to him and said, can you tell me how to be wise? He said, sure, I can tell you how to be wise. They were standing on the seashore, so he started walking out into the water, and he led this guy out in the water until the water was up to here, and then he shoved his head under the water and held it there. And the guy struggled, and he held it there a long time until the guy was in pretty bad shape, and then he let him up, and the guy was angry. Why did you do this to me? Well, what did you think about when you were under the water? Did you think about your vacation? Did you think about how much money you were going to make next week? Did you think how you were going to paint the town red tonight? No. What did you think about? Air. Anything else? No. Well, when you want wisdom as badly as you wanted air, you will become wise. And that's what Jesus is saying. Perceive with prayer. When you become desperate in your prayer for answers... For discernment, it will be given to you. God answers those who are serious. He answers those who keep coming. In fact, it was pointed out yesterday, the best gift he gives is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I think really is the answer to all our prayers, because everything that we receive is ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I do not take that for granted. That's a prayer I pray every day. Every day I pray for myself and many other people. God, fill me with your spirit, with your grace, with your wisdom, and with your compassion, and with your truth. I pray that prayer for myself and many of my friends every day. That's the prayer. But mainly, the Holy Spirit. And it says he gives the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. I think many people go through life and don't ask. They just don't ask. They don't think to ask. I think that's a prayer you should pray every day, that God would give you the Holy Spirit. All right? And God always gives us the best. He doesn't give us always what we ask. He gives us what we need. A good illustration of this is my father. I went to high school, and he he insisted that I go to high school. I really didn't like school, and it would be a sad story for me to tell you about my school experience until I got to college. Then somehow I enjoyed learning. But uh, so I wanted to take the easiest course in high school, which would have been the vocational ag course. Uh, but my dad said, no, I'll teach you all you need to know on the farm. You're going to take the college prep course. Well, I, he did not want me to go to college, but he knew that's where I would study Latin. I would study chemistry. I'd study physics. I would study, yeah, all of those difficult subjects. So he made me take that course. Well, little did I know at that time that my dad insisted on giving me the best preparation he could have given me for what my life has been. It prepared me to go to college, which I did later. He wasn't planning on that, but he had given me the best gift. It wasn't what I wanted, but it was what I needed. And that's what God does. We pray, and he says, well, he doesn't really understand what he needs, and he maybe is going to misunderstand what I give him, but I'm going to give him the best in relation to his need. And so that's what God always does. 
All right. He gives us far more. He gives us uh, the Holy Spirit, and he gives us those resources. Remember that picture I put on the board? With all the resources of heaven made available to us through Christ, he opens all that up to us. In fact, one of these says, to him that knocketh, to him it shall be opened. What's going to be opened? I think it's that cloud of heavenly resources is opened to you. Okay? And he says, everyone that asketh receiveth. Everyone. It took me years to realize this promise. Everyone that asketh continues to ask, continues to seek, continues to knock. It will be open to them. It will be given. This is a promise. Well, so we've had correct with compassion. We've had witness with wisdom. And we've had proceed with prayer. And now the final question is, how shall I handle situations that are not specifically mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount or maybe even in the entire gospel? The gospel doesn't tell you what kind of car to buy. The gospel doesn't tell you what kind of uh, dress material to buy. The gospel doesn't tell you what kind of vacation you should. There's a lot of things the gospel doesn't tell us. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell us. And so what do we do in those situations? Well, (laughs) this Sermon on the Mount has an interesting little clause in it. I smile every time I read it. And it reminds me of the Constitution of the United States, which, by the way, the Constitution of the United States is twice as long as this uh, Constitution of the Kingdom, and it's a much smaller uh, kingdom (laughs) with a Constitution that's twice as long. But even the Constitution of the United States, the people who framed it realized that there would be these situations that that Constitution did not cover. So they put in it what we call the Commerce Clause or the Expansion Clause. And what that basically says is, If there's anything that this does not cover, oh, I need to go back. The states have certain responsibilities. The federal government only has responsibility to govern interstate commerce. So whatever it governs, it has to have something to do with interstate commerce or foreign affairs. That's all the federal governments to do. The states have the responsibility for all the rest. But it says if the federal government doesn't know whether a certain thing, or it's not covered by these... uh, specific statements, they're to go, they have the power to go ahead and do it. It's called the expansion clause, that uh, they're, they're to go ahead and, and do what needs to be done, even though it's not specified, if it has to do with interstate commerce or foreign relations. We call that the expansion clause. Well, this has an expansion clause. Now, if I were looking for something that would be in every person, without any question, that they could reference to make their decision, I'd have tried to find the very best thing I could find in human nature to appeal to. I'd say, well, here's the best thing in human nature. Let's, let's, let's teach people how to appeal to that good side. So if you want to be selfish, just be as selfish as you can be in your thinking, and then go do that to the other person, and you'll always be right. Oh, my. He uses, so if you want to be selfish, just be as selfish as you can be in your thinking, and then go do that to the other person, and you'll always be right. Oh, my. He uses, so if you want to be selfish, just be as selfish as you can be in your thinking, and then go do that to the other person, and you'll always be right. Oh, my. He uses something. Oh, my. He uses something very wrong in our nature to instruct us how to treat people right. Well, no wonder. The Bible says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Surely the wrath of men shall praise him. God knows how to do this. He knows how to take the base things and get his will accomplished. This is selfishness turned on its head to fulfill all the law and the prophets. (laughs) I hope you smile every time you read it, but most of all, I hope you take it to heart and actually put it to practice. Indulge your selfishness to the nth degree and then go do it to the other person. I'm sorry, indulge it in your thinking. Okay, Don't, don't go beyond that.
<clears throat> well, you know, God in this Sermon on the Mount, in some concluding statements, God wants to take our lives and he wants to incorporate them into a beautiful harmony. All the discordant pieces and, and loose ends and human nature and all that. He, he wants to somehow make a beautiful symphony out of all of that. I'm reminded of Paderewski, the famous Polish pianist, who one, day, one evening was giving a concert. And in the intermission, a little boy wandered onto the stage and sat down to the piano and played chopsticks. And the audience was horrified. And people said, get that child off the stage. And his parents were mortified. But Paderewski came out from behind the curtain and said, no, 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 no. And he walked up behind the little boy. And the little boy was playing chopsticks. And he added a beautiful setting for chopsticks. Made a beautiful piece of music out of just that simple little melody. And in my concluding statements from the Sermon on the Mount, that's really what God wants to do. He wants to put his hands over our shoulder and take our pitiful little melody that we're able to come up with by his spirit and just add a beautiful piece of music to it so that it's something that brings glory to God. In conclusion of this message, there was once a famous German artist by the name of Hokemer. He was born in the Black Forest. His father was a simple wood chopper, but he was an extremely talented artist. And after he was trained and had a reputation, he moved to London, and there he set up a studio and became famous as an artist. His father eventually moved there to be with him, and his father discovered that he had skill in making pottery. So he made pottery, and so he and his son were in business together. But as he got older, his hands became trembly, and he would go to bed at night and look at his pottery, and he'd say, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. This pottery isn't what it used to be. And he'd go to bed sad. His son would wait until he was sound asleep, and then he would come downstairs, and he'd take the pottery, which was still green, he would put it on the wheel, and he would make it perfect and set it aside until he had all the pieces perfected. And then his father would come down in the morning, and he would say, you know what? I believe I still can do pottery as well as I ever did. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. Paul says he labors to the point of agony to present every man perfect in Christ, certainly our brother, and then as many people out there as we possibly can. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father, we thank you so much that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He showed us by his example what it means to be redemptive, to prostitutes, to tax collectors, to all kinds of unsavory people. Oh, God, deliver us from this self-righteousness that has this ridiculous idea of getting up by putting other people down. Help us to realize that when we esteem others better than ourselves, we are doing the very best we possibly could do even for ourselves. So help us, Lord, to learn these lessons. Lord, if we could practice this the way it should be practiced, most of our church problems would be greatly reduced. So help us, Lord, in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.